Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this show, we're going to talk with Tom Shepard, the director of Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America. The film looks at the plight of LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers who are forced to flee their homeland because of violence and persecution, often at the hands of homophobic family members. In 2014, um, I started researching this film, and at that time in the U.S., LGBTQ civil rights was accelerating quite quickly, and marriage equality was sort of steamrolling its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where it would become law of the land. And But I was doing some refugee uh, volunteer work at a refugee resettlement organization in the Bay Area, where I live, Jewish Family and Community Services. And they had just gotten a grant under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to resettle queer refugees. And I think it was one of the first in the country to do that. And I just thought, wow, this is a ripe moment because, you know, um, state-sponsored homophobia and persecution of, of queer people in many other parts of the world seems to have gone up as things, it almost felt kind of inversely related what was happening here in the West. And, and also, honestly, I'm a gay man. I live in San Francisco. Most of my friends are fairly progressive and educated, but I don't think one of them could have told you how a refugee is resettled or even the difference between a refugee and an, an asylum seeker. So I think I was interested in like, you know, would there be an opportunity to make a film that would, you know, allow this conversation to be amplified? Because I think most Americans don't don't know it. It made me start thinking about all the ways in which I now have rights as a gay person in the U.S. and appreciated like how that was is so not the case in other parts of of the world. In, in a number of countries, and we focused um, more on regions in Africa and the Middle East, you have, in many cases, um, not just sort of intense kind of anti-queer, anti-gay bias, but you, you often have state-sponsored uh, homophobia. So you can't really go to authorities or police to protect you. But, you know, the biggest difference, Mark, is... Um, Refugee resettlement in this country, and we have a good record historically in the United States for resettling persecuted people, but it's always been based on families. So a family will flee a war-torn zone, say in Iraq, and come to San Francisco, maybe where I live, and immediately they're connected in with, you know, other Iraqi or Iraqi Americans, a mosque, community center, members of their diaspora. And it's by no means easy, but there are ways to like let people get, you know, kind of their sea legs when they get here. If you're a gay Iraqi, quite possibly the last people you want to see when you come to San Francisco are other Iraqis because you're not fleeing with a family. You're often fleeing from family. And that was, I think, the most heartbreaking thing in, in all of the stories that we covered. There was this really intense violence that our subjects faced at the hands of their own parents often or other family members and you have and particularly in some countries now in Africa you have a thing called lesbian corrective rape which is this almost um, 
culturally reinforced, like we've got to change these people and, and bring them back on the straight path to do honor by our own families. So honor killings, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty intense what these young people have sort of faced. So when we started the project, most of the refugee resettlement folks hadn't really tuned into these, you know, specific, um, needs and experiences of, of queer refugees. And, and often those folks, when they get here are, you know, much more likely to be isolated and, you know, sort of repeated trauma, the PTSD, and, and then also kind of displaced again once they get here. So I guess I was a little bit shocked at how different the experience is for a queer person. What were some of the challenges you faced making Unsettled? It's interesting. We had a really hard time funding this film at first, and then Trump won the 2016 elections and suddenly we raised, you know, more than 60% of our budget in the next six months. I will say we're super grateful to the independent television service, ITBS, for being an early development funder and then coming back and, and providing completion funding. But, you know, the biggest challenge was finding people who would be willing to go on camera because because of the persecution, because of the trauma, they're not only worried about their own sort of well-being, but they're also worried about putting their family members back in their home countries in harm's way. And that if their stories become too public, um, they're concerned about what violence might might happen in their countries of origin. So, um, so one, I feel very lucky to have partnered closely with Jewish Family and Community Services, and they got to know me you know, very carefully and gradually and could kind of see what my approach was to the film and then help me connect with some of the refugee clients that they had. And then I also felt incredibly lucky to meet a woman named Melanie Nathan, who is um, a powerful advocate for LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers in Africa. And she was following Cheyenne and Marie's story on the ground in Angola. And she, you know, I reached out to her and she said, you won't believe this story. What what these women have been through. They've been in a relationship um, and they somehow got a student visa and they're going to be arriving in San Francisco next week. And I basically just dropped everything to meet them. And, but you know, that relationship took time. And if you talk to them, I hope you do there. You know, it, it was weeks and months for them to understand what the nature of my film was and kind of what my sensibility was and for them to, to start to, you know, trust to open up some of their, their stories. One thing I think that's um, useful about our film is that the subjects who agreed to participate all have very different experiences. They're from obviously from different places, but their resettlement experiences, their first years in the U.S. were were quite different. Um, Subi Nahas, who is a gay refugee from Syria, fled as the you know the war had started the year before, and he was having intense conflict with his own father and so was able to flee to Lebanon and then ultimately to Turkey. And I met him via Skype before he came to the U.S. And so I was able to like kind of hear and understand his backstory. He hadn't been in the United States for three months and then he was invited by then Ambassador Samantha Power um, to the United Nations to speak before the Security Council. First time ever for a gay person to testify in front of that august body and um you know that's not a typical refugee resettlement story he immediately became a sort of poster boy for refugee rights 
many, many, many people were writing to him, press, of course, but also um, people who were stuck in their countries, sort of saying, like, how did you do that and how can I do it? And I think that must have been incredibly overwhelming for him for a year or two. We, we sort of follow that story when part of him just wants to find a normal life and be, you know, sort of have a, have a normal existence. Um, so um, that story juxtaposed to Junior Mayema, whom I also met through Jewish Family and Community Services. He was an activist and a law student in Kinshasa in Congo. And, um, I think was targeted because he was so out there and his mother is a sort of fundamentalist preacher and had, you know, said some, some pretty horrific things about gay people and, you know, would have to kill her own kids if they were gay. And so junior like fled quickly and went to South Africa thinking that Cape town would be a refuge for him. But in fact, actually ran into the same kinds of anti-gay persecution, um, police brutality. He filed a claim against the police in Cape Town, and at that time, the United Nations expedited his refugee status and got him papers to resettle in San Francisco. His experience in the first year was super challenging. He must have moved 10 times in the first 10 to 12 months when he was there, and which both sort of underscored the fact that you know, our city was just beginning to come to terms with how do we house folks? We, you know, middle-class people can't even afford to live in San Francisco now. Um, try living there on a refugee benefit of 325 bucks a month. So Junior was couch surfing and was um, experiencing almost a, rep- a repetition of that kind of displacement. And I think that affected him to his core. So he ended up in a homeless shelter and that was something that that we filmed and has been still struggling, but was able to get a public uh, housing accommodation in, in San Francisco finally. So, um, you know, those guys struggled as refugees and as gay men, but is nothing compared to asylum seekers and particularly women. And when I learned about Cheyenne and Marie's case, um, One, that these two women kind of had the wherewithal to form their relationship and have this loving relationship in Luanda, Angola. And they were pretty successful. They're dancers and singers. And um, I think Marie had even been a finalist on a sort of American Idol type show in Luanda. They were successful popsicle entrepreneurs. They had a little business. So they were doing well. But... um, their own neighbors, their own family members started to harass them pretty intensely when they found out that they were a couple. And so they fled on a student visa and came to the U.S. and basically had to adjudicate their asylum case, get a pro bono attorney. And it took about almost three years for them to work their their case through the system. Um, it's intense. I mean, women from from that culture and some of the other cultures we followed are expected to get permission to even leave their cities, let alone countries from men, from their fathers, from uncles. So for, for these women to kind of have the fortitude to make it to the US and then be able to support themselves. Um, asylum seekers don't get any refugee benefits. Um, they can't get their work permit for like months after they file their claim. They have to have a lawyer. Uh, it was nothing short of miraculous that these two women kind of navigated the system here in the U.S. It was quite a learning process for me to work with these folks because we we followed them for almost four years. 
and of course, we're still working with them. So, you know, and I knew very little about refugees and I knew sort of the basics of U.S. immigration policy, but couldn't have really told you much about the refugee experience, let alone LGBTQ refugee experience. And, you know, they're all trauma survivors. So the trust stuff was really challenging. And I think, you know, understandably, it took a while to develop, you know, some of the rapport, but they, I just so admire them for being willing to kind of expose their stories. And so soon after they'd gotten here. How do you start it? How do you build rapport? Well, documentary is so much predicated on access and kind of relationship building. So the craft part of it, of course, you have to hone that. And um, the storytelling is critical. But in, in my time, I think just as I've matured, as maybe I've become more sensitive as an older person, like ability to connect with people and and hopefully try and create a space that enables folks to be heard and seen, um, you know, has, has developed over time, I think. And I teach a lot and I have to say that's become a real key for me. I teach every summer here in Colorado Springs with young filmmakers from kind of underrepresented backgrounds and they keep me very fresh. And, and, you know, we're talking about this stuff all the time about how do you connect? How do you stand in the shoes of, of, of other people and other experiences and this idea of very thoughtfully investigating people. And I see my students do it and that inspires me to want to do it um, as well. I think it's a lot of active listening and this idea of, you know, making clear to them that you're seeing them and you're hearing what they're saying and that you're incredibly empathetic, that you can hold this, that whatever pain it is that they're holding or their tangles that need to be smoothed out, you can, you can hold it. I actually find having a microphone and a camera there often helps the process, which is sort of counterintuitive because you think, wow, it's so formal and that would create nerves. But I think for a number of the subjects, they see this whole apparatus is interested in hearing them to listen, to hold whatever pain and, and struggle. And I think people really like to be heard and like to be seen. And we live in a culture that's a little bit about the loudest voice wins. Not everybody is, you know, the best listener in the world. And so, and especially these folks who their single strategy for surviving in their countries was to be silent, was to be invisible within their own families. So suddenly to have these empathetic people, producer, director, even our camera people are the most sensitive, empathetic people you'll meet, all tuned into, I want to hear what you have to say. That's pretty powerful. What was your intention in making Unsettled? I love something that Marie says in the film, which is that, you know, most Americans, when they think of refugees, they think of, you know, poor, uneducated criminals, you know, people who want to steal jobs from Americans. Um, You know, all of the people we followed were highly educated, but were in a system in which they had to either remain silent about who they are and who they love, or they were going to face huge harassment. When Trump kind of... um, followed through on much of the anti-immigrant rhetoric that energized his campaign, it, 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 it's, it's been pretty striking. Like the number of refugees now allowed into the U.S. since Trump has been in office has been cut by 80%. So while the U.S. used to be the sort of safe harbor and resettle more refugees than any countries in the world, we're now at an historic low. So despite the fact that all these people we filmed 
helping refugees in San Francisco create this kind of new infrastructure, the number of refugees coming into the country now is down to a trickle. So I think um, our approach as filmmakers is to, to try and really humanize for a broad American audience, like who refugees are, what are their lived experiences, not just their persecution, but what are their hopes and dreams and talents. Um, and so, you know, that that's the part that I think the film plays, but I think what the public can do is definitely um, engage with their representatives and with Congress, especially right now, the country's attention is focused on black lives, black lives matter. Three of the four subjects in our film are black, but they're also refugees and they're also queer. So I think, I think educating folks is, is, is the best place to start. What impressed you most about the refugees and asylum seekers you met while making this film? The thing that impressed me most about all of the folks we followed is just this resilience that they were able to tap. Um, you know, I think they were in life-threatening situations back home and then faced transitions in their acculturation and resettling that that were that nobody anticipated and that they kind of kept on surviving these difficult um, experiences just makes me realize, you know, as, as someone who was just born here by the fact that I was born in Colorado Springs, I'm entitled to all these sort of basic things like, you know, a, a, a place to live, connection to family, you know, knowing how to, to work my way through the world and stuff. So um, it's, it, it kind of amazes me, um, you know, how much they've survived. And in fact, if you look at people now and in the U.S. And, and in Europe who are out on the front lines during the COVID crisis, many refugees who have been resettled are the ones that are now doing that work. And it doesn't surprise me at all. I think many of them are very crisis competent and not afraid to engage in these difficult times and these difficult experiences. There's a scene from your film that really tore me up. It's when Subi is reunited with his sister. He meets her in the airport and they embrace holding each other as if they're never going to let go. It reminded me of the importance of connection, family and friends, and it was very touching. For us too. Um, and I think for all the reasons you're saying that part of the story is this huge rupture that happens within your own family. And so for Subi to, from his end, after he's started to resettle, to like do everything he could to help get his sister out and for his sister um, to be able to reconnect with, um, you know, her own family. I mean, it just, for us, it kind of, it did sort of encapsulate what the film and the film stories were about. And so, it just it, it sort of made sense chronic chronologically in the film, but it also just made sense in terms of kind of circling back to what that kind of essential rupture is and the need to have to flee. Because that's not a choice that most Americans have to make in their life, to have to leave their country knowing that they can never go back. So the fact that Subi and his sister have each other, um, pretty powerful. What did you learn about yourself from working on this film? You know, I grew up in a one of the more conservative towns in America, Colorado Springs, at a time in the 80s and 90s when, when Colorado Springs had become ground zero for the religious right. You have 
focus on the family, the New Life Church. You have a really strong sort of military establishment here with the Air Force Academy and NORAD. So um, being an openly gay person growing up in Colorado Springs was very difficult. I kind of understood internally to be a gay man and to be a documentary filmmaker, I probably wasn't going to be able to stay in the Springs. Um, so, I mean, my experience in no way compares to Subi or Shine and Marie or Junior, but I understood the need to flee. And at that time, San Francisco was the Emerald City. And I could go there at that time, I could live with roommates for $300 in an apartment in the Mission. And I could find my tribe, both as a filmmaker, there's such a strong film community there, but also as a gay person. And I think the subjects of our film had that same mythology of what San Francisco was, you know, kind of a promised land for queer people. But as I said earlier, it's like, you know, try living in San Francisco now, even on a middle class income. You can't do it. Teachers can't do it. Firefighters can't do it. I mean, people are leaving the city in droves, including artists and filmmakers. So I think one of the questions that that really became central, which I wasn't expecting when we started the project, is like our cities like San Francisco and New York, obvious choices for queer refugees to be resettled, are they really the same sort of sanctuary cities or refuge cities that they used to be? And the film really looks at a place like San Francisco and the changing character of, of, that, of that city. So I think it, for me, as a, you know, I've split my time now between San Francisco and Colorado Springs. Um, I, it, it raised some really fundamental questions about my own city, both cities. What is your process like in making a film? I think the process is, is reading and then talking with friends and colleagues. And, um, and then, of course, so many things have to happen, Mark, for a film to, to really take root. There, and access is, is such a huge one. And that, that was really tricky early on. But these projects often feel like you're kind of you know, pushing a Steinway up the side of the hill and you have to stop a number of times and you have to you know, bring on a number of, of Sherpas who are capable and... And that's always served me very well on every film project is that my, the people around me are people that I love and trust. And, and often many of them are mentors as well. So I'm learning and engaging as I'm making the film. That's the best way to, you know, learn filmmaking and hone filmmaking is to be around people who, you know, um, share the benefit of their work. And so I think of people like Jim Klein, who, you know, for me has been a kind of surrogate parent, a teacher, a mentor, a colleague, and we we started our collaboration with Scouts Honor back in the late 90s. And, you know, he's a giant in our field of independent documentary filmmaking, and he's got such incredible mentoring instincts. And he often would bring the conversation back to where is the humanity in the story? And also, where is the emotion in the story? That, I think, when I was a young kid, documentary wasn't so interesting to me because it was very expository. It was very educational. <laughs> Those instructional film strips that we used to watch in class, you know, about the reproductive system. And that's kind of that's kind of where documentary was for me. But Jim opened the doors to this, you know, whole 
kind of body of work of, you know, the Maisel's brothers of, you know, Barbara Koppel of he and his um, filmmaking partner, Julia Reichert, and, and how people can take the cameras and tell their own stories. And as filmmakers, we're there to really just facilitate, to create an environment where people can step forward and, and tell their own stories. So um, Jim has been a huge, like initially formative and now continues to be one of the, the biggest filmmaking influences in my life. Have you screened the film for the people that are in it? Yeah, we premiered the film at the San Francisco International Film Festival a year ago. Uh, we did a little sneak preview screening just with them and a small group of friends and family before that. We we finished the film literally a week before the San Francisco Film Festival. And um, so that is incredibly nerve wracking. Talk about vulnerability and exposing. Like they feeling incredibly exposed because they're seeing themselves kind of writ large on the screen during these really like the most difficult times in their life and it's you know broadcasting to the public and then me as a filmmaker having worked on this for four years sharing my interpretation my filmic interpretation of their lived experiences I felt very exposed and vulnerable so we're all like (laughs) raw vulnerable beings sitting in this theater together and you know there is something lovely and magical about that but also kind of scary What would you like an audience to go away with after they see the film? I think the reason we made the film is to really like humanize who refugees are. And of course, in particular, LGBTQ refugees and their experiences. So I want people to feel more than anything, just to connect to what's happening on screen. And if you open hearts, then you're bound to open more minds. And I think if someone feels something for Shine and Marie or Junior, Subi, they're going to be more likely than maybe when they see a, an article in the New York Times about refugees to read it. Maybe they hadn't before. Or they might be more likely to like volunteer at one of the local refugee organizations, refugee rights organizations in their city. So it's all about a kind of an emotional connection that can then be a starting point for action, you know, some kind of call to action to make, make the world a better place, make the world better for refugees, better for all of us. So. It's a real privilege to be able to support people who are trying to tell their stories. And I think, you know, the work we do in Colorado in the Youth Documentary Academy, you hear a lot of talk these days about equity and representation, particularly in Hollywood and in filmmaking. And it's good. It's good to politicize it. It's good to talk about it. It's good to talk about it a lot. But I think, like, educating, working with young people, high school age students. We work with, you know, people mostly from very diverse backgrounds, underrepresented backgrounds, and we put the cameras in their hands. And, um, you know, we mentor them, we share all that we know about storytelling, because we know they are going to be the next generation of filmmakers, and they are diverse, they have diverse faces and diverse voices. And also, when they see that their own lived experience, their own story is worth telling in the world that filmmaking isn't about something important out there because I read about it, you know, in the newspaper, that it's my story that hasn't been told before and they're the access point to it. And then they have the competencies and the skill to tell that story. That to me feels like we're doing very powerful work on this issue of, of representation and equity. So, you know, for the time that I have left on the planet, I want to be involved in these kind of creative collaborations and continue to kind of level, level the playing field and for the voices that we, you know, that, that we don't hear enough. 
Well, do you have anything else to add? On Monday, June 22nd, NPR's Ari Shapiro is moderating a panel on our film with former U.S. Ambassador Samantha Power and Subi Nahas, who was invited by Ambassador Power to the United Nations. And I'm also going to be part of that conversation. And, and we're thrilled that, that those folks in particular are, are adding their voice and, and their name to our film so that, you know, many more people, we hope, will, will learn about the stories. The film uh, has its national public television broadcast on Sunday, June 28th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. You have to check your local TV stations. It's on a series called Doc World, which is distributed by World Channel. And um, so you can go to your PBS station and find find where Unsettled will be playing. And then it will be streaming on PBS.org and WorldChannel.org for two weeks in July as well. If you'd like more information about the film and the director, visit Unsettled.film. Just a reminder, you can find us on the web at stageandscreen.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to our podcast. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon.